All right, welcome everybody to another edition of Legal Tech Week for uh, October, what is it? October 23rd, 2020. Uh, this is the uh, program in which we have a panel of legal tech journalists to talk about the top stories in legal tech and legal practice and legal innovation over the past week. I am Bob Ambrogi. I write the blog Law Sites and have the podcast Law Next. And our panelists this week, as you see them before you, uh, let's introduce ourselves. Molly, why don't you start? I'm Molly McDonough. I'm a, a legal affairs journalist, a blogger at Adjust Society, and a consultant based in the Chicago area. And Zach. Hey, everybody. I'm Zach Warren. I'm editor-in-chief of ALM's Legal Tech News, coming to you live from a Minneapolis that saw seven inches of snow earlier this week. Oh, Fun times. So bad. Uh, Joe. Uh, Joe Patrice from Above the Law and uh, currently auditioning to be CNN's legal analyst because I hear there's an opening. <laughs> um. uh, Nikki. Okay. I am Nikki Black, the legal technology evangelist with my case. I write legal tech articles for Above the Law, ABA Journal, um, The Daily Record uh, here in Rochester, and the My Case blog, among other outlets. And um, just in case anyone's wondering, I am currently wearing pants. I don't know about the rest of you, but... <laughs> This, this was going to be the all pantsless edition of the show in honor of uh, a couple of celebrities in the news this week, but uh, you'll just have to uh, take our word for it as to whether we're wearing pants or not, because nobody is going to show below the belt on their camera this week. And uh, Caroline. Yeah, Caroline Hill, based in the UK, where pants mean something quite different, guys, obviously. <laughs> oh, it does. What Which is has caused <laughs> some excitement and confusion on our email exchange. I see. <laughs> Hi, uh, Caroline Hill, Editor-in-Chief of Legal IT Insider, based in the UK, global audience, um, do a lot of webinars, and here it, in where I am, it's eight o'clock, it's dark, and it's horrible. <laughs> so what do you call pants? Trousers. Trousers, okay. So we definitely don't call them pants, <laughs> pants is underwear. So yeah, when you were... <laughs> So then you're all talking in the email exchange about hey, not, not wearing is, pants. This, My eyes are bulging. This is why you want to tune into the show because you learn important things like this. <laughs> um, may, I may or may not be wearing trousers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. Well, uh, so it's, it's actually been a, a pretty busy week this week and a bunch of stuff to talk about. But um, I did want to just take a moment to... Uh, Remember Gail O'Connor, Gail McCormick O'Connor, who died last Sunday, um, apparently in her sleep in her home in New Orleans. Uh, I, I suspect a, a lot of people on this, uh, in the audience and, and probably on this call uh, had occasion to run into Gail uh, at some point or another, if not get to know her pretty well. She was uh, somebody who'd been involved in the legal tech industry for uh, a long, long time. I can't even remember uh, when I first met her years ago. Uh, and uh, really uh, way too, uh, too untimely of a death uh, for somebody who was still in the prime of her life and uh, great loss to all of us. So I thought we could just do a moment of silence, which would, I don't know if you do that on a podcast, but... Uh, Let's all take a moment of silence and remember Gail for a second. All right. And uh, yeah, I forgot. I did forget to mention that uh, Victoria Hudgens is not going to be able to be here today, and Victor Lee, who's is also not going to be here. So Victor and Victoria are uh, appropriately both off at the same time. Um, so a lot to talk about today. I, I'm not quite exactly sure where to start. I mean, we could we could talk with the reason about about the reason we're talking about no pants. We're not we're debating whether whether the Tubin story is even a legal tech story. But heck, he's a legal analyst. He's a lawyer, and uh, that was quite a tech uh, a tech screw up. Uh, uh, I did not cover it. Joe, did you did you write about it at all? Why do I think you might have written about it? Yeah, uh, <laughs> he did. Yeah, we he did. 
<laughs> we did, we did talk about it. Uh, what was, I think my headline was something like, Je- uh, Jeffrey Tubin has a great point. Oh my God, his dick is out. Um, <laughs> and no, like, yeah, it's- And you uh, had the greatest line ever in your article, I thought. I don't know why. <laughs> I can't remember what uh, what all little tube and escape the car. Oh, the little tube and yes. Uh, well, because <laughs> when it first when it first came out, I'm going to push back on the idea that it's a tech story. Just because when it first came out, I thought it was a tech story. Because when I first came out, it seemed like it could well have been the idea that you know he woke up early and you know while not professional, he was taking the call wearing boxer shorts or something, and you know stepped up and stood up and something happened, and you know that's a tech story to me. Uh, it turns out that is not what happened. Um, so uh, this makes it a little less of a tech story and more of a him affirmatively sexually harassing his coworkers story, which uh, which is very different. Uh, though obviously tech is is tangentially involved. Yeah. Well, uh, like like I say, there may be an opening open opening at uh, CNN and, and the New Yorker right now for uh, no, I don't I don't know what happens with with all of that. It, it, it's really yeah. bizarre. I mean, he, this is you know not not his first uh, uh, trip around the corral or, or whatever the uh, expression is. He's he's had issues before, but uh... <laughs> I I knew something was wrong a little bit more than just an accident when his immediate response was apologizing to his wife, uh, which, you know, an accident you wouldn't do, uh, but he is no, he is no stranger to apologizing to his wife. So I think he knows when it's, when he has to do that. So um, yeah, uh, it was, uh, it wasn't good. (laughs) Yeah. Well, anybody want to offer insights or comments uh, or, uh, (laughs) <laughs> I don't think you're going to get much any takers on that. Um, I feel like the wisest course is just to, you know, bite your tongue, right? Like, <laughs> yeah. I have nothing intelligent uh, to say about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, uh, maybe just uh, maybe this is a good a good time to talk for me to just talk about my story because it just it's a it's a it's a week of uh, of people in the news for odd reasons I guess uh, and and this, the story I wrote about this week was a story I started following back in 2016, but a guy named Derek Bluford who's a really a really interesting character, but he had started a, a legal tech company uh, back in 2016 called Quick Legal. Uh, he was kind of uh, a, a, a darling uh, of the legal tech world for a while. He had this up and coming startup. He was uh, due to speak at uh, Legal Tech West Coast as a sort of a featured uh, up and comer in, in the legal tech world back in 2016. He had done a couple of startup competitions uh, with, with success. Uh, Claimed he was about to sell his company to uh, like Legal Zoom for tons and tons of money, uh, and and uh, I came across the fact that he he had uh, j- had just settled a lawsuit uh, against him for fraud and impersonating a lawyer and stealing like five hundred thousand dollars from from people. Uh, and uh, when I reported that, uh, kind of things started to fall apart. It wasn't long before Quick Legal was out of business, and uh, he was disinvited from uh, uh, speaking at uh, the Legal Tech West Coast, and, and various other things happened. Uh, but then he sort of started popping up in other ways. Other these other companies would get started that would have these strange relationships to him. Like everybody who worked at Quick Legal was there except him. And it was all done by the same lawyer and everything else. Yeah, it was a, a very weird story for a few, for a, quite a few years. And he, then he just kind of disappeared and I didn't hear from him for a while. And then this week he published a book, uh, a self-published book on Amazon in which he claims that basically for the last two years, he's been working as an informant for the FBI um, in which he's been uh uh, helping to bring down uh, uh, mayors of various municipalities uh, across the uh, country uh, through another company that he had helped start that uh, was uh, uh, called Text to Ticket originally, and I forget what the current name of it is, but uh, uh, it, it was a, it was an app for helping municipal police departments and municipalities enforce like traffic tickets and things like that, uh, and uh, he was apparently like trying to 
bribe various uh, mayors uh, and political officials around the country to get them to do a contract with this company, but supposedly all being done under the auspices of an FBI informant. Uh, and uh, so that story came out this week. I, it was like, stranger than fiction. And then I just, after I wrote mine, I saw a post, uh, a New Haven uh, newspaper uh, did a big story about uh, uh, following up on, on his efforts to, in fact, bribe the mayor, the then mayor of New Haven, who, uh, in fact, there was a, 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 a documented uh, dinner in which uh, he went to dinner with the mayor and the mayor left with a cash full of seven, an envelope full of $7,000 in cash. Uh, claiming uh, she didn't know uh, what was in the envelope, uh, and uh, later she says she later gave it back to him. Um, and uh, so, I, my bizarre, my favorite part about story. your story, my favorite part about your your post, Bob, was that her quote that said, "The mayor, I'm pretty sure we didn't break any laws." I'm like, well, that's reassuring. Like, <laughs> this is your official quote, right? Yeah. Well, she might have said more. Than that. I might have picked and cho chosen a little bit, but yeah. Um, and she says she's she said she's thinking of suing him. I, he's just uh, it's unfortunately somebody you don't know uh, what you can believe and what you can't believe in terms of what he says. The book could be a total work of fiction or it could be entirely true. And I don't really know. Um, is it pitched, it's pitched as um, true, true, true facts, obviously. Yeah, no, it's pitched as a true story. Yeah, mm. no, he, he says this is what he's been doing for the last two years mm. since. Uh, so he actually does. I, I do get a mention in the book as a legal blogger who uh, reported on who reported on his lawsuit. Uh, and he also mentions in the book that that when he called me and told me that he was about to sell out the company to LegalZoom or something, I checked with LegalZoom and they said, no way we have nothing to do with this guy uh, and he mentions that in the book too so that's cool I think I, my first impression Bob was this great journalism to be honest with you I mean it's very cool and, and um I mean we obviously not at all of our stories have quite this, this much <laughs> <laughs> this much drama and you know it's I mean it's it's great that you were able to you know stop him potentially you know, causing further damage. I thought I was, I, I think I commented on your post on Facebook saying, wow, it's, it's, um, it's one of the more exciting stories that, <laughs> that we get to pay. Right, well, that's the thing. We don't in legal tech get these mm. stories, you know? Mm. Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean it's, it's interesting when you're, when we're reporting on lawyers, um, you know, um, at the journal, I had a, we had a protocol for evaluating credibility of sources, including checking bar records and, you know, and things like that. But when you're reporting on, um, on folks who are entrepreneurs and business folks who don't have that uh, public paper trail, it can be harder to dig that information up until right. you find a, a court record, right? <laughs> like right. you did. But right. it's great. It just, pro I mean, it, it proves, I think sometimes we were quite rushed, aren't we? And, and you know, there's a bit of yeah. a slightly risk of death by press release. It just shows to me that what I took from it was the importance of doing real journalism and not just spilling out a whole bunch of the stuff that we're fed. You know, there's this kind of almost a responsibility, isn't there, to dig deeper, actually, and make the time to do that? Yeah. Well, and, and also, so. I think it's great. Sorry, go ahead, Joe. I'll, I'll chime in after. <laughs> Well, I was just going to say, I think it's, it just isn't an um, attestation to what you do, Bob. And people, I've been at so many tech shows where people talk about how your blog, you know, it's sort of the power of blogging, but also what you bring to blogging and your background and your insight and your skill that, you know, that your blog has become a, a hub for legal tech news. And the, the, the fact that you were able to, that you were willing to put the time into this and to get that information and to write about it and to do the research, you know, it's, it just shows what a wonderful job that you do. And it's, you know, it really was quite impressive. I completely agree with that. It was really good investigative journalism and it made a yeah. difference. Yeah, it was really good. Yeah. All right, well, that's so, it for today's yeah. show. I think oh, it's a good no. point. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just going to say, yeah, no, I mean, in, in all seriousness, though, um, Way to, way to go, Bob, you for blowing his cover and ruining that probe they were doing on the legal tech industry. Like he, he, he'd been embedded for years and you had to destroy it all. Yeah, he came out with the book, not me. I didn't put it on Amazon. I mean, I like to think that we all, you know, like do, do our research. And it's, but this yeah. is, you know, this is great. This is really yeah. sort of above and beyond. And, um, yeah. you know, I think it's great to see. Yeah, it's good to see. Yeah. 
Well, I, I don't, you know, and I, I think we, part of the trouble is we, as you say, Carolyn, we, we're often rushed, but often, in a way, you often don't think, I mean, somebody comes to you and says, oh, I've got this great idea for a legal tech company and I'm doing this and that. You kind of don't even think about, do they have a criminal background or what is yeah, their yeah, background? Yeah. I mean, you, you tend to take a lot of people just at, at their word and at face value. And I, I, I will say uh, to follow up on Molly's point, I, I've kind of gotten so that I do, if nothing else, I'll often just like at least, you know, run them through Pacer or something to see if, uh, if there's something going on. I mean, you can't check all the state court records as easily, but uh, 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 you, you at least want to know if there's any major uh, litigation involving these people. Well, that's what I was going to say, too, is to a certain extent, like, yes, legal tech is big business. And yes, all of us here obviously cover it. A lot of people are interested in it, but it still kind of has an element of the Wild West to it, where a lot of people are just coming into this for the first time. They might not be lawyers themselves. They might just be interested. So I know I've done maybe not Pacer, but I've done some LinkedIn searching, like, where exactly did this person come from? Like, randomly out of Nashville and now they're interested in legal tech, how exactly did they get from A to B? And that's how, honestly, at least for me, some of the most interesting stories have come out is just those random backgrounds that kind of tend to pop up in this industry. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know, we got a lot of other stuff to talk about. Who, who, wants, to, who wants to volunteer to talk about? Who's got something they want to talk about? Talk about the banking uh, I, thing. Oh, Molly, yeah. you Well, I, I can go first. I, I just um, um, really quick, Nicole Braddock and Theory and Principal held a, a bridge gathering between civic tech and justice tech on a platform, Remo, uh, and it was really fun. Um, I, it was, it uh, was it was great. It was, it basically requires you to be in a small group setting with your camera on. So you're, you know, at that awkward table that you get seated at, whether you know people at or not. Um, and then you could hop around and choose your tables. And it was really fun. I actually met some new people um, and connected with them later on, on LinkedIn and through email and got a chance to catch up with some other uh, former colleagues and, and friends. Um, and then the, the programming was pretty good. They had a major con connectivity issue with one of the speakers. Um, but I really like the idea of bridging that civic justice tech divide. Um, mm. There's a lot of work going on in parallel uh, and kind of keep getting those people in the same room uh, can be pretty valuable. So I'm hoping that, that uh, uh, Nicole does that again. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Do you what, have what an kind? I'm sorry, I missed the question. Did you have an avatar? <laughs> no avatars. <laughs> it was real. I it it was very much like TO um, in the setup where you could you know double click a table and then you could go move to that table. Um, it, it the room was set up the same way um, on the, as that platform is, except the except the people are real. <laughs> it's it's I mean, your it's it's this screen with your background. Um, to, to Nikki's point, though, imagine an avatar could have saved Jeffrey Tubin's career. Like, <laughs> we would have had a totally different setup. That sounds cool. I'm sorry I missed it. I really, because, you know, I think, yeah, it's great to pull together some of the better examples of online conferences. So um, I'm sorry I missed that, actually. I wonder if there's um, stuff that we can get. I guess it won't be the same on, like, even if there's a replay. Yeah. So I know a couple of people mentioned, Caroline, I think you were just mentioning the, the Baker McKenzie thing. Is that what you were talking about? And then, yeah. So I think Zach, Zach, Zach you're, you're, yeah. Victoria yeah. had written about it. She's not yeah. here. Uh, but, uh, so, so Baker and McKenzie entered into, um, into a partnership with a company called Spark Beyond, um, which is a an AI innovation or AI. Well, I, called it, I didn't call it AI innovation company. I called it AI research engine, which is what it is. Um, and it works with companies like... Um, McKinsey um, with Thomson Reuters um, and what it does is it effectively um, someone described it as a data lake and, and I've had so much mixed feedback but anyway so I spoke to Ben Orgrove who's the head of R&D actually this this project is being run out of Baker's new innovation arm which is called reInvent not to be mixed up with reInvent law which confused me a little bit but anyway um, and so what they're doing is they are um, so, so Spark um, Beyond they um, 
they they effectively um, mine all they combine Bakers data from across all of the different systems they don't do a huge um what often holds back as we know these big machine learning projects is trying to get the data into some sort of structured form they don't do that they kind of trawl all of their data as well as the they combine it with publicly available data um and um and then they they start to try to predict for example, if you are advising, if Bakers is advising a client in an M&A transaction, um, they might try to use it to, um, initially actually Bakers is using it for internal purposes, but then the, the objective is that they'll start to use it for clients. So for example, they've got a big M&A, they might trawl to say, right, well, these are the risks, these are perhaps the non-legal risks in this due diligence process. Um, and there's all sorts of other sort of situations where they're thinking that they, uh, for that, they probably have to bake in the client. That, so, so I'm not explaining, but so there's different stages. There's four different stages. So they're going to use it internally. Then they're going to, if that works and they can get further investment, they're going to bring some more resources in and then they're going to start trying to bake the client data. And so they've got an even bigger pool of data and then they're going to start um, mining it to sort of predict, for example, as I just said, due diligence risks, that kind of thing. And sort of create these, this very um, sort of like side, advisory um, machine learning led advice um, and if that works then they're going to look at how they can productize it so for example if they've got something that worked for not just one two three clients but say a thousand clients or then they, they're going to look at how they productize that um, and then um, then they're going to look at stage four which Ben Algrove said is maybe may not happen um, is is where they start to look at um, Bringing, bringing all you know, bringing um, that kind of knowledge to people's to, to, to where people are working, right? Um, which is um, which is sort of quite a big sort of ambition. I thought Ben Algrove was very, um, he was very sort of, you know, I felt very honest about, you know, this is a big project, you know, it's very different to anything that we've done. There were lots of comments on after I read this piece, there lots of comments on LinkedIn about, oh, this is this is what is this like? And this is putting tech before the problem and all this kind of stuff. And, and, and they, they, you know, to a certain extent, they've got a point. But what's really cool is that, um, I think it's really cool anyway, is that what they're going to be doing during the whole course of this project, um, and for me, perhaps this is one of the most interesting things, is they're going to be look, taking, they're going to be using Spark's um, tech to look at how, starting off with one practice, how they work. And one of the reasons that you can't, um, you can't, um, so what I'm looking for uh, that with, obviously with volume work, then you can you can start to um, create efficiencies. But with more complex legal work, because everyone does things in slightly different ways, it's quite hard to automate it. Automate is not what I'm looking for. It's late. <laughs> so so what it's going to do is try to look at all the different ways that people are working and see. Obviously, it'd be slightly different. But say right, well this is this is how it's similar, and then try to because it's such complex to try to automate complex legal work is obviously a huge change all sorts of reasons why it doesn't work partly cultural partly tech and everything so it's going to try to help with that as well trying to help to create sort of a pro a, say right well this we think is a common process for this piece of fairly complex legal work um the, what what's in so there's lots of i had lots of feedback one one is like oh this is this just like the, the press releases of 2017 it's all about ai it's nonsense yeah. <laughs> um and I, I can see why people might say that but actually i think they're being very transparent about and also spark beyond does this with some really cool companies and and it says that so far it has made a billion um dollars of difference to their bottom lines with companies like mckinsey as, I'm, as i've already mentioned and others and those corporates that they're working with it's really, it's a really interesting project. I think they're being pretty honest about what they're doing. I like the fact that, um, and and Spark is a pretty cool company. So yeah, I don't know what anyone else thinks about that. I I, I thought it was interesting for sure. It's interesting. Yeah, Zach, did you, I know you guys wrote about it. Yeah, we did. Uh, Victoria's one who wrote about it, so she knows more than I do. But I definitely agree that it is interesting. The, I mean, there's a few different thoughts that I have about it. But the very first one is, especially in this first phase, we talk a lot about being able to predict with judicial analytics and litigation the outcomes. But this is a different type of prediction, where essentially it's kind of turned on the clients a little bit of, I'm trying to predict your risk and do it proactively, something that you're not even thinking about right now. So how exactly do I do that? What are even the data sets that I'm using to try and draw that out? Because kind of to your point, Caroline, it's so expansive. It's thinking about analytics in a little bit of a different way that I think legal has previously, which has been so litigation focused. Yeah. So I'll be curious kind of 
from that angle, A, whether it actually works, and B, just how much not only the lawyers themselves, but the clients in particular, take to that um, kind of the analytics being turned on them a little bit. Yeah, because they're saying that where, you know, we have a limited, because we've only got a human brain, we might foresee all of, you know, say two things that could happen, but because, and it's a quite clever, if you look at some of the examples of the work that it's done, um, for, I think one of the examples outside of legal was it was talking about where you might want to launch a business and we might have certain um, thoughts about where that might be as a business advisor but it came up with and i forget what type of business it was it's right you want to you want to you want to the ai that spot beyond system came up right you want to open next to a laundromat right <laughs> which people hadn't thought about but because it, it, it was because it um is able to process so much more data and and perhaps it breaks it out of you know we we, we do things the way we do we know we know what we know kind of thing um and sometimes it's hard to so, so it's it's creating um, it's giving you knowledge that you might have to so say, for example, if yeah, out, out of 10 things that it comes up with, but Bakers was then all was saying, hopefully there'll be a couple of things that they hadn't thought of, that sort of thing. Um, I think, I mean, it's really, it's, yeah, it's, it, and what's quite cool is, A, it's a non-legal tech vendor, so they're doing something with someone from completely outside of the sector. It's horizontal, so, um, and, then, and it's not um, very specifically use case um, based, um, so they are thinking quite laterally. Um, and I think I'd be really, yeah, I mean, they, 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 I think they're honest. They're like, we'll, we'll see where we get to. Um, and I think that, um, yeah, it'd be really fun. We will see where they get to. But what's, oh, I tell you one other fun thing. So, we're, so what's on the subject of Bob um, saying about, you know, doing proper journalism. And then, <laughs> so then, and then there's other things that I'm now following up with them in terms of what's happened with other projects that they're working on. Because obviously, it, it sort of, then you start to think, well, what's happening with that that they're doing? You know? yeah. So, so that's, that's something that I'm going to be following up with them. Um, yeah, that follow-up is another thing that can fall by the wayside when you get all wrapped right. up and keeping up with everything that's new. Sometimes you forget, well, last year they said they were going to do X, Y, and Z, and whatever happened to that? And that's where, that's where yeah, exactly. Yeah. I like the, I like the, uh, the headline uh, on the law.com one on Victoria's story, which was Baker McKenzie's new AI project, knowing what clients want before they do. <laughs> <laughs> I had fun with that one. <laughs> I'm going to post my story now, which doesn't have quite such a cool story. I've, I posted your, your I put the URL in the chat. Mine doesn't have that cool story, the cool headline. <laughs> I'm going to go back and change it. <laughs> it's a great story. Just didn't have, I just like the headline because it kind of, uh, it, 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 that catches you right there. I mean, it's, it really it's, it's does. A great it's yeah. good. So, um, all right. Uh, Nikki, what, how about you? What, what's, what's up with you this week? Well, there were two things that caught my eye. The first was, um, more of a legal tech industry thing. Uh, you'd written about it. Case Text um, rolled out this um, uh, ability to use context, which was what they'd rolled out. I believe it was at uh, Legal Week. Um, yeah, it was Legal Week. And it's this this brief, um, uh, this capability to create these motions using AI. And they rolled it out so that you can do that within Word. And I just, I sort of just wanted to call that out because every time I read about something that case text has done. Uh, it's, it's one of those things that makes you go, hmm, like, you know, I'm showing my age here, uh, you know, pulling on like 1980s rap, but uh, you know, it's one of the, they always make me go, hmm, like that's really interesting. You know, they do things, they see things and do things in a different way. And um, I just sort of wanted to call that out because it, you know, they always do, it's an, I'm always very impressed with what they're doing. So yeah. um, I think that's a good thing to call out. I mean, they do they they do think out of the box in terms of legal research, and they come up with really clever, uh, clever and useful and practical uh, ways of, of doing things in legal research. I mean, when they first told me they were doing this, I kind of was remembering back to like Lexus for Microsoft Office or something, which was kind of a big deal at the time when you could just search Lexus from within a a word document, but, but this really takes it uh, to a whole other dimension. Uh, and it's, I think it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I'm just trying, I put your other article into the, there, the case text is in there now. Um, the other thing that I thought was really interesting was um, this, it was an article from uh, <clears throat> a blog post from the technology and marketing law blog um, about how, someone sued and i'm putting it in the chat right now has somebody sued facebook for um a murder that occurred and 
it, essentially they um, the estate of the person who was killed by a stranger. The stranger um, stopped and shot some random person on the street, and the um, defend the um, defendant in a lawsuit, the person who killed the plaintiff, um, well, killed the man whose estate sued, um, had posted something, sort of some rant on Facebook prior to doing so that sort of impl implied that he was going to go out and murder somebody. But he this was just a random stranger that he picked off the street. So he didn't identify who he was going to murder. I don't think he didn't know who he was going to murder when he posted that. And the um, court granted Facebook's motion to dismiss because for any number of reasons, you know, that it was um, the uh, post itself was vague, that there was no idea, way of identifying who he was going to kill because he didn't even know who he was going to kill at the time, that this allegation that Facebook's algorithm should have picked up on this threat and then who would they have called and what would they have actually done if they were going to try to stop this guy? Like it was just, you know, it, it wasn't this sort of foreseeable end result. But and, and that just it just caught my eye because it's so interesting to me having, you know, my co-author, um, Carolyn Elephant, I wrote Social Media for Lawyers, and that was published in 2010 by the ABA. And I've been writing about social media, screaming about it from the rooftop since, you know, probably 2007. First it was blogging and then it was Facebook and Twitter and trying to get people to understand that this is going to impact you. And it was it's just been so interesting to me to watch over the years as it just becomes this inevitable you know, it's such a part of our lives and it shows up everywhere. You know, initially it was being used as evidence in cases and that's when lawyers started to really take notice. And now it just infiltrates everything. You know, we, and especially now that we're all remote, even more stuff is happening online than it happened before because it's the only way people can interact. So it just was so interesting to me to see that, uh, you know, the estate of someone who was killed tried to uh, pull Facebook into it and sue them and allege that they could have somehow prevented this. And um, I think that in 2006 and seven, when I started writing about blogging and social media, I don't think anyone in a million years would have predicted we would have gotten to this point. And I just thought that was a really interesting case uh, for that reason as well. Yeah, that's really interesting. Did, did I, I mean, I assume if somebody was more explicit about their intentions uh, in terms of, uh, what they plan to carry out or even address to a specific individual that the outcome would have been different here? I mean, possibly. Oftentimes, it's, and anecdotally, oftentimes what I've noticed is that when you do, uh, it's other Facebook users will report some sort of post and then that triggers things. But in this case, they were just trying to claim that the algorithm should have picked up on this threatening language and somehow triggered someone in a short enough amount of time to try and get the authorities to do something about it. But it's, I think when there are more specific threats, um, it's a, you can come up with a more tangible claim that because it's uh, more foreseeable, especially if they were notified by other users, I would argue. Maybe as their AI gets more sophisticated, uh, maybe that can uh, start to become an issue. But then again, there's like surveillance issues and um, privacy right. issues in some way. So it's, it'll be right. interesting I mean to see how this plays out. There's no shortage of rants and manifestos. So uh, at some point, the, what the first step is, it violates the community standards or the, the use rules. And then does, the, does Facebook have an obligation to report that? Um, that's a different question, but I, and I don't know that that was resolved with this because of so much of, the, um, so much of this was vague. Yeah. Don't worry, they're going to get rid of Section 230 here in a minute, and then all of a sudden, it's definitely their responsibility. Right. All right. Um, Zach, did you have another story you wanted to bring up, or was that were you the um, Baker? Baker was the main one, but yeah. also just found it very interesting how I believe it was Harvard Law is already saying that probably they're going to be remote in the spring as well. Um, Edwin Chemerinsky out in UC said the same thing. So it's just one of those things where the next generation of lawyers are kind of caught up in what everybody else is. And it's interesting to me whether where that does people a disservice being remote literally an entire year of a three year law pro program, what it looks like for the future of law and are they actually getting the instruction that they should by 
just with everything going remotely. I don't really have any answers, but it's just something that interests me and I like to think about. Yeah. And what did, what did California say this week that they're going to uh, grant like temporary licensing of, of lawyers without a bar exam or something like that? Anybody see that? Yeah, <laughs> Did I make they, that up. They, yeah, well, I mean, uh, I don't know the specifics of each of these. This is a popular uh, way in which some of these bars are going about it. I personally think it's the most useless way that you can try and help any of these people because I don't know about you, but like I when I uh, when I got out, I went to work for a firm and I had somebody supervising me and I got to do all the things they're ever going to let a first year do anyway. And I didn't need anything temporary. This temporary license is just like saying, oh do the thing that you were already legally allowed to do in the, you know, with a boss. Right. And, and most of these things say you have to have a supervisor anyway, which was already this, ah, it just frustrates me to no end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, I had a crazy week, Bob. <laughs> yeah. Did, did, <laughs> I won't get too, I way. talk about it too long because I know I waffled on about makers. But, so there are two, two stories I know which interest you most, but there's a new fund that was launched by Kerry Birch, who used to be the CEO of Thompson Reuters Elite. Um, and then a U, the UK firm, Travis Smith, they've launched this open source contract labeling tool, which my title was Travis Smith launches open source contract labeling tool and why legal AI vendors will probably hate it. And then I had a bunch of people phoning up going, I don't hate it. I don't hate it. <laughs> but I don't know which one of those sounds most interesting to you or which one you prefer if you want me to talk about either. Well, whatever you, whatever you find more interesting. Um, so the fund, so Kerry, so well, so the fund, um, well, actually, I love both of them. So, <laughs> well, the fund is actually interesting because that might fit with some other stories. But. The, fund, the fund, so Kerry Birch was an elite. He's launched it with Eric Backlid, who um, used to be, who was the CEO of AFI, um, and a bunch of other people. So Eric's son is involved on the board. It's 100 million to start with, but they've got big ambitions and they're going to be funding. They're calling it operators for operators. So, what that means is that whereas with a lot of investment funds, it's not um, people who potentially have been in that same situation as the people they're investing in, but a lot of the people involved are have been in the same situation. Um, so they're advising on reg tech, cyber and legal tech um, and helping them in the capacity of an advisor is, is Gabriella um, Asturias, who founded eBilling Hub and iTimeKeep. Um, and she separately, but, but actually it's now being um, incorporated as part of Brightness, the company's called Bryce Catalyst. Um, and she's launching a, um, an incubator for female founders, which obviously the, the number of female founders is still ridiculously low. And the number who get funding is ridiculously low. So, so there's a big part of, sort of diversity theme running through this, which is really, really cool. Um, and yeah, they, they sort of um, they're going to work with really early startups, so pre VC, pre pre private equity, um, and really help them. They said, you know, they really understand how hard it is to run a business and to really sort of get it off the ground and things. And they'll, so they'll be obviously taking a cut, but they're going to be um, providing things like um, if you need a CFO, they can help with that, and if you need just operate whatever operational stuff you need help with, they can provide that. Um, and um, yeah, so it's, it looks it's, it'd be pretty interesting. So it's another another fund on the block. Yeah, what what I what I so I, part of the reason that I thought that was interesting is this is also a week uh, in which um, I don't know if any of you saw this the post on uh, on Medium from this guy uh, Ted Wang of, of Cowboy Ventures. Uh, uh, I think that's the name of the company. He's a he's a he's a, a venture capitalist. He's a lawyer, former former uh, practicing lawyer put this post up on medium basically describing his vision for the perfect kind of contract management company you know which is a hot hot uh, topic in, in legal tech uh, and and saying in his post on media we would love to fund a company that is building technology aligned with the vision outlined in this post if you are interested please reach out to me <laughs> I mean how many how many emails did he get I don't know uh, and then in in the same week um, there was the article on law.com. Uh, Zach, I don't know if this was, this was Dan Packle wrote about this ex Kirkland chair creates this SPAC looking to raise $200 million for a legal tech acquisition. The SPAC means a special purpose acquisition company or something like that, where they're, they're just trying to raise, they just, they just want to get into legal tech and they just want to acquire a company and that's what they're going to do. Um, all of this, I like, just speaks, speaks to how hot this, Field is right now. 
I think I think it was great. I, I think there's been a couple of examples that I probably shouldn't name recently where um, you fear that because it's hot that you're going to get a bunch of people buying up and rolling up companies. And you think, you know, it is legal is not this precious. I know we've kind of got realised now that legal is not so different in many ways to other sectors, but actually there are things which work and which don't work. And, and I, I do feel like people with knowledge of the sector if in an investment capacity it would be helpful in terms of how you develop it and how you treat customers and clients and that kind of thing yeah yeah kind of going back to caroline's story though what really interested me is just the diversity of people that they have working on that one because thompson reuters and i time keep they're very integrated into the practice management of it all but afi this ex-ceo of that is kind of coming at it more from the ai side and the tech side um so getting a little bit more of the standard law with the tech and marrying the two i think could have some very interesting results of people that are very forward-looking in this yeah. Any other thoughts on that? Um, what else do we have? One, one other one I thought that was kind of interesting, Joe. You you brought it up in an email uh, today on the the redaction story. Yeah. Uh, which I I was actually I, I noticed that myself, and you said you're not sure it's a legal tech comp story, but it sure seems like one to me. <laughs> it, it definitely it, it it seems it, it seems legal techy. It definitely seems legal journalismy. Uh, we actually the reason I mentioned it was we recorded Thinking Like a Lawyer, the podcast that we do internal to Above the Law. We recorded it yesterday, and this came up in that. And we riffed on it uh, for a while. And I was like, oh, maybe that would be a good thing to bring over here. So for those of you out there, especially given our, uh, our audience has a lot of folks who deal in press relations for companies. So, you know, when you're dealing with things, uh, sometimes things get redacted. And this is letting you in on some trade secrets here. But when you, something is redacted, the way in which journalism journalists deal with it is we select all and then copy it and then paste it into another document. And most of the time, people don't actually have redactions on it. They have put little tags over things that make it not appear. But once you copy and paste it, everything shows up. So we can read the whole redacted document. It's a lot of fun. Uh, thankfully, it seems as though, in a, in a rare move, some people involved in the Ghislaine Maxwell case uh, the, which is tangential to the, uh, not tangential, but deeply embroiled in the Jeffrey Epstein case. Uh, they understand that you can do that. So they did their job. They did not, as an e-discovery matter, redact it such that you could copy and paste it. What they didn't really think through was that they, they didn't get rid of the index. So you'd have this you'd have an index, which if you depositions have everything, you'd have an index where like the word would be derp. And then the word after that would be destitute. And in between was just a blacked out word with like 55 mentions, you know, right there alphabetically where Dershowitz would be, uh, which allowed <laughs> everybody to go through and backwards create based on the index where Dershowitz was in every place of the, uh, of the uh, yeah deposition and slate Slate actually was the first people I saw who did it. They announced within fairly quickly, within like an hour or so of it being out, that we have the fully unredacted version and explained in glorious bragging detail how they figured it out based on the index. Uh, so don't do that, people. That's an e-discovery practice pointer. You should get CLE credit for this. Yeah, I think that's I think that's great. I think it's really interesting. It's a whole, it's a whole other angle, as you say. That the, usually the story is the uh, the copy and paste one, and it's surprising surprising to me how many lawyers don't even know about that trick. But but the yeah. journalists all know about it, and that's all that matters. We I, I had fun with that last year with the Jones Jones Day uh, story when they when they put out the the, the file filed the document uh, with the botched redactions, and they they blamed the journalist uh, uh, for the uh, error rather than fessing up to the fact that they screwed it up. Sorry, Molly, I got you. 
No, no, I was just going to say that um, there are so many ways that redacting can go wrong. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean, it's, I, I can't even tell you how many times I've downloaded a document and things that were supposed to be redacted were just there. Um, uh, so, yeah, lots of, lots of issues. And if you're used to looking at um, government filings and know what the sequence is, you can also guess um, if you're, especially if you're a reporter and you've been covering these, you know, and, and there, there's an error, then you can easily kind of go back and fill in what, what um, was meant to be redacted. Yeah. I mean, one, one of the, one of the worst ones was they had, <laughs> they had one where sometimes a word comes up in different formats, right? The word Allen can be with Dershowitz. Uh, not, not that I'm picking him particularly to tie to this scandal that he is obviously <laughs> tied to, uh, but just reminding people that he is deeply involved in this scandal. Anyway, uh, but the word Allen uh, is in there, but it's also one of the lawyers in the case, uh, their office is on like Allen Drive. And so the, the, I mean, the, the, those depositions, the index doesn't care the context. So it has like the blacked out word Allen and then all these sites, one of which takes you to an unredacted blah, 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 Allen Drive, which means which meant that they could look and go, well, that is obviously Allen then. And that means all these others are, too. It's unbelievable how wow. uh, just boneheaded this decision was to not uh, redo it, redo or completely not have the index. Yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. They also, uh, they also got Prince Andrew, hey? They got reference to Prince Andrew in the... Oh, that's true. I, I'm sorry. I, I should have I should have put him in here, uh, you know, in honor of the cross pond. Uh. Uh, uh, anybody have any uh, insights or thoughts on the uh, antitrust suit against Google filed this week? I, I mean, I'd forgotten that we had an antitrust law in this country, so I was super excited <laughs> to hear that. Uh, it's been like 20 years since one of any consequences happened. So that was interesting. Uh, I don't have a ton of uh, insight into it, but I have been talking with some folks about um, antitrust, so like trying to get a sense of like what this means. And most people were, you know, they, they feel as though what's going on is it's unfortunate that this is clearly a retaliatory measure, that the Department of Justice is just mad that Google isn't nice to Donald Trump and therefore they're doing this. But they feel like it, it's one of those, it's sad that that's the reason, because this is the sort of thing that's a long time coming. Yeah, yeah. what kind of stood out to me, too, is obviously it was the Donald Trump DOJ. I think it was 11 Republican AGs that joined. But here in Minnesota, I know that uh, Keith Ellison put out a statement that said, yeah, that's interesting. We're looking into this, too. So I think it may be a little bit more bipartisan than some people initially gave it credit for. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my, this, for some reason, this came up when I was getting a haircut yesterday in the, in the barbershop. Yes, I went to a barbershop and lived. Uh, and, and people were saying, well, isn't Google just better? Isn't that why, <laughs> isn't that why it has so much market share? There's something to that. Alta uh, Vista. Yeah, Alta Vista. Well, yeah, I mean, <laughs> DuckDuckGo, uh, unfortunately, just doesn't, doesn't quite do it. Um, it feels a bit like going back to the point we talked about with the court cases where the, the tech cases come up before the judges and everyone goes, oh, it feels a little bit like with, with these monopolies that these tech companies yeah. have that we're in uncharted territory, right? It feels like, you know, and, and <laughs> everyone's going, I'm going to do this. But actually, it's pretty ineffective and, and they're really not dealing with the monopoly. Um, and, and it's incredible because we've had all of these long-standing competition laws. Um, when you do M&A, you know, you prevent these monopolies arising, but <laughs> it seems like there's, there's not really an awful lot of um, control as we yeah. know. Yep. Well, the thing that I think is so interesting about the tech, these tech companies is, you know, it's one thing to be like, oh, they have an oil monopoly. Like mm. that's such a discrete concept. Whereas what Google does is not, it touches so many different things, you know, it's mm -hmm. search, but it's also, you know, data mining and identity, you know, and all the marketing. And there's just so much that they do and that they have their fingers in, so to speak, that it's hard to even identify what they have a monopoly on. They've got a monopoly on a lot of different things. And so one of, <laughs> same one of the weird... One of the dumbest things they did was become Alphabet and say, we literally have a million things that we control. Yeah, no, uh, but 
in a lot of ways, it's reminiscent of the Microsoft situation just now in kind of a cloud world. Like when Microsoft Microsoft got dinged for forcing you to use their web browser with their computer, basically, right? Like it was a little more complex, but that's generically what it was. Now you don't really have that situation, but like they're selling Chromebooks that only have Chrome and like, like, Chrome and the search engine work together. Like so much of what they do, it doesn't involve a physical box the way that it used to with uh, Microsoft, but that doesn't change what the Sherman Antitrust that Act should think about it, right? Right. I'm just going to uh, plug one of my favorite books on this topic, The Big Nine by Amy Webb. <laughs> If you want to, if you want to um, get a really great background on the development and the implicit and um, bias in the development of AI and these these uh, the anti-competitiveness uh, that's evolved with these large tech titans, that's it's a really really good primer and it's it's a it's a fun also scary read. Was it just sitting on your desk? You just. <laughs> Well, you had it there. <laughs> just sitting on my desk. <laughs> <laughs> just tapping out. Um, yeah, okay. Uh, you know, actually, something else I meant to mention, uh, which I thought was kind of interesting, was when we finished our show last week at, at 4 o'clock Eastern time uh, on a Friday afternoon, uh, Law Maddox announced that it had raised $2.5 million in funding. Uh, interesting story. I mean, there are... This is the, the guy who originally founded my case uh, way back when and then, and then sold it uh, and then started the CRM platform, uh, uh, Matt Spiegel. Uh, but it just seemed like very strange timing to me. And I'd be like scratching my head about why did they announce it on a Friday? Usually you announce things on a Friday afternoon when you don't want anybody to know about them. Uh, and I couldn't figure that out. But I, I, that was uh, an interesting story. And, uh, you know, yet another, uh, that, I mean, that's another area, I, this, the whole uh, area of, of CRM uh, that almost didn't exist, you know, five years ago for legal, except for really big firms. There was nothing much for the smaller firm market. Uh, and then suddenly that's, that's taken off in a big way. All right. Good. All right. Well, thanks to everybody. And we will be uh, back again next Friday, same time.